Hey gang, for those of you who enjoy QF, a podcast about Howard Stern, and would like to donate to us just via PayPal, you can using the email address johnnythegreek21 at gmail.com. You can check the link in the description for the spelling, and it's also here on the graphic. And if you'd like to do more in terms of uh, donations or subscriptions, you can use our Patreon account and subscribe via the black kluge level and you can receive our weekly content that we're putting only on patreon it's exclusive for that platform and um anything over five dollars is just gravy guys we love you thank you so much now look i don't want to get into a long explanation that's not what i came here for my audience isn't here they're here to laugh hour and a half i have not taken a break spread the word about serious we do not take commercial breaks that often let's go ahead to randy i don't want to be in a wig and a purse i do that in my personal life i don't want anybody touching me yeah i don't i'm with you sometimes like hey man what's up yeah you touch me because you're paid to touch me i'm not saying i was the biggest stud but i got mine and i fucked some pretty good looking women way before i was howard stern on the radio fuck off the nose I have now is gigantic, and the fact of the matter is, the reason it looks different on Letterman, which I've explained a million times, is that I keep the camera so far back on the e-show, and I only shoot from the right-hand side. You wouldn't turn the children against me, would you? I would try. <laughs> <laughs> she would, too. She's coming and she's fighting on all sides. No, but I'd win that one. I wouldn't even have to do anything. If you ever did anything to hurt me, they would hate you. I wouldn't hurt you. I just want to go out and have sex with some women. Would... But, Listen, by yeah. the way... Considering what I'm going through, I feel horrible that your smoking hot girlfriend went to a movie without you last night. And, and, and then came home. <laughs> Can I say yeah. something about that, though? And then came home. Let's be honest, though. Uh, you're, when, you're, he, when he you're, was knee-deep in Johnny Walker Blue. Well, the think, bachelor part. I think yeah, it was but, a good idea for the beginning of it. Yeah, I think you would have you would have been just as weird. If we started the beginning, you'd go, oh, my God, everyone's staring at me. Not me. I love it. I love when people stare at me. He loves to be stared at. <laughs> I love it. Move into Sam's house and get the fuck out of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> Back, we'll get beat. We'll get Beetlejuice to pick yeah, out our get fatter. We're more of those fucking <laughs> Beetlejuice will pick out our church. You can live with Sam and blow him. You'd be a little baby. No, you can't live without a stylist in your life. No, I'm thinking who would be easier to replace? And I think Ralph, of course. But there's a lot of guys who picks up your clothes. Chris, could you date Ralph? Would you? Would you? You couldn't. Walk. No, no. Look at that smile. He's lying. You're lying. Robin, Tell the please. truth. Could you, could you, Robin, could you Robin, date could Ralph? You date Ralph? That's a no. Yeah, right. Oh, please. I could. No. We would have the best time, Robin. I, would I talk couldn't to date you. Ralph. Would talk to me. I couldn't date Ralph, but I could fuck him. I'd fuck his brains out. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> maybe. If you guys a lot of were, people feel that way. I know Ralph is straight, but... All right, now I understand. All right. I don't understand. It's I can't understand Gordon. It's a straight place. No guy, let me just say something about men. No man says gorgeous. Says gorgeous. Really? This restaurant is gorgeous. Okay. Now, you gotta understand something. Guys don't next, talk that way. Guy goes, hey, it was a good lunch. It was sort of sad. Well, the sketch, what the controversy was, it was Patrick Swayze who's, you know, gorgeous. Hey, folks, this is Fillmore. We hope you enjoy this latest installment of our breakdown of The Truth Lies Within, the Paul D. Colford unauthorized biography of Howard Stern, part two. Guys, we're going to continue with clip number... Uh, this is a clip I m- forgot to play in relation to the ventriloquism and the puppets and all the bullshit that um, uh, Ray and Ben were talking about. And it's a really short clip based on someone's estimation on his skills. The Howard Stern that I recall was a very 
laid-back, mild-mannered kid who was very bad at ventriloquism. <laughs> I love that. Very bad. That's not. That's not even like was subpar. It's just it's bad. A, it's definitive. I love that. Um, it's a, such a declarative statement. So the next clip is going to be part seven, uh, the or, uh, the riding in cars with gargoyles. And it takes us, if you're following along in the book, guys, it's page eight and nine in chapter one. For Howard, these were fascinating encounters. Observing popular performers at work in his father's studios. Absorbing the imaginative uses of a soundproof room. And perhaps most important of all, seeing that fun was honorable work for a serious gentleman such as his father. The recording session stirred an early desire to become a radio entertainer. During the many car trips with his father between Roosevelt and Manhattan, Howard sampled a lot of radio programming, such as all news that bored him enough to hunger for a more spontaneous alternative, the kind that he himself would provide in due time. As a kid, I could understand him being um, bored because who cares about the news when you're a kid? You may study it as you start going through, you know, it depends on your, your upbringing. You may read the papers a lot younger than other people, whatever. But in his case, obviously, he was a dullard and he Ben just wanted to hear the news on the drive. Like, you just shut the fuck up and do what your father says. And he clearly wasn't getting enough attention in the car. Meanwhile, he's got to concentrate on the road and the news and his stupid son. <laughs> Yeah. You it know, just as an aside here, Elliot Gold sounds a lot like Herman Munster in this reading. I keep picturing Fred Gwynn as I hear this. <laughs> yeah, he does. He was Mr. Gilmore, too. So in the Gilmore Girls, uh, he played uh, Rory Gilmore's grandfather or Lorelai's father. And he does sound like that. I It does depend on what you listen to as a kid. So... My dad listened to sports radio in Howard, mm-hmm. but I did get some news, so I do enjoy listening to talk radio news when I'm in the mm-hmm. car, but mm-hmm. I listen to talk radio news in the car. So my daughter kind of takes that in, and she enjoys listening to that and follows along with what's going on and cares yeah. about it. Right. Mm-hmm. And if you if you if you're going to take the narrative that okay he wanted to be in the radio not being in the studio producing talent he wanted to be like uh, he wanted to get his father's attention then it basically meant I have to be talented I have to be entertaining I have to be informative I have to be funny but he wasn't fun like I don't think Ben ever found him informative funny anything and in fact he gets most of his information from Ben Sam yeah you also I, have a oh, child you also have a child too who is given so much attention who has unlimited activities provided by his parents it's seemingly whatever he wants to do, they give to him. And he's in a car and is bothered by not being paid attention to from the news, in a ra- mm-hmm. from the radio. So he's combating for attention from a radio. My child would never feel, I guarantee you, she's not jealous of the radio. Like, <laughs> that would, you know what I mean? That would never occur to her. Like, only a narcissist would be jealous of, why isn't your attention on me at all times? Bingo. Ben? Yeah, I hate that psychology one-on-one breakdown of, ah, oh, so that's why Howard wanted to go into radio. Right. I mean, why is he not sitting there going, oh, I wish I was driving a car so my dad would be paying attention to me as another person in traffic? <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, 
it, it's a really uh, it, it this need to draw um, and do this play psychology 101 it's yeah. very frustrating well it can be now here's the thing the other the, it's it's also very uh, self-serving for him to say you know uh, if um, just to presume he was bored Ben was a very inquisitive guy. He would love, he loved to read clearly. He loved to be informed. He was probably not bored one bit by the radio and the news. That was just Howard's presumption because he's bored. So again, he's projecting onto his own father, his own boredom with whatever he, he feels is boring, which is, you know, pretty much everything after a certain amount of time. He just dilettante with every fucking hobby. So why not with news as well? And notice every time he's bored, it's because it's not about him. And it doesn't matter what the subject matter is. You can put right. any subject in front of him. It yeah. doesn't matter. He's going to be bored <laughs> if it doesn't result in me. Me. <laughs> I, I realize he, he he created, he should have sued uh, Spike Jones for uh, being John Malkovich because in Howard's world, he is that in that scene where everything, they just, every word is Malkovich, except it's stern. Like, you know, it's Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. And so... It's really fascinating in that sense. But um, later on, guys, I should tell you, by the way, we're going to play some of his, uh, at least one of his influences that he refuses to uh, take seriously. I don't know if we'll get to it this particular chapter, but when you hear it, you can absolutely hear Howard, where he gets it from, at least partially. And Steve Dahl will also come up with examples of that later on. Uh, ben? No, no, I'm sorry. No, okay, okay, I'll continue. The image of Ben Stern, trapped like millions of others who battled their way in traffic in order to reach work, all the while with the radio on, locked in Howard's mind as the picture of the typical listener. In Howard's words, the average schlub at the wheel was the one he wanted to make laugh. So in the book, this is what they cut out. He, This is quoted uh, Howard from the interview that Colford did with him personally. I've had the same concept since the beginning, Howard later told an interviewer. Or it was another interviewer, but he's uh, citing a source here. I watch, I'd watch my dad commute, and when he was stuck in the car, he'd just sit and listen to CBS News. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if he was laughing, if every once in a while he heard a disc jockey say something funny, something that made him glad he was there? And listen, I understand being entertaining is, is fabulous for some, but it makes it sound like Howard never once had politics or never had <clears throat> so you know sociology or economics or history on his mind and it was always the most frivolous fucking shit so comic book level intelligence you know on the basis on like you know the dumb dumbed down stuff so does it surprise anyone that he was you know a slow learner that he was reading itsy bitsy that he was in BU remedial classes and stuff later on yeah yeah he was smart the thing that he did which I mean, you have to credit him for this. He knew his weaknesses. He must have known. And he partnered up with Buckwald, who got him everything. Who got but him did, everything. But did he know his weaknesses? Didn't Ben have to criticize him and send him like a, a letter or a tape at least of saying, look, this is what you've done wrong. You sent me a video. You sent me part of your radio thing, and this is what you're doing incorrectly. So he's always had to have some kind of like everybody else learning stumbling blocks you know over when you're learning to do things right i don't know that he knew intrinsically what to do i think he had to fail many times and uh, and did in certain markets we'll find out later on before he you know it wasn't he wasn't a natural i'd say not not at all no so, I mean, it, it wears his influences. And then, again, the only problem is he never cited these influences ever. 
And it was always, oh, he copied me, he bullshitted, you know, he stole my act. Rush Limbaugh learned everything from radio from me, all this crap, which, okay, shtick. But when you keep repeating it, it gets annoying, especially when people know differently. Yeah, this this is uh, an issue that I've had with uh, that I've had with Howard in that he's got the the nation's media in his backyard. So when he goes and talks to the media, it's not like he's talking to a local journalist. He's talking to a national journalist. And when he tells them that these guy, this guy in Chicago is how he would refer to Steve Dahl ripped off my act, my act, or, um, Bob Grant learned how to do radio at my feet or whatever. Um, these people aren't going to go and investigate. They're going to take his word for it. And Mm so he's, he's been able to, um, you know, through using the national media, uh, get it out there and say he's the inventor and he's the creator and he's the pioneer, and he never gets fact checked. No. And you and you'd think that would get better with the information we have at our fingertips with the dawn of the internet, but it's only gotten worse. Oh yeah. It's only gotten sloppier. So you'd right. think it would be like it is so much easier to be in communication with journalists or to fact check the information that's being put out there by people but mm-hmm. people don't yeah. even do that i i can watch anyone say anything and you know it's false and then there'll be 15 domino effect articles across google that mm-hmm. don't even yeah. fact check they just piggyback yeah it's and clickbait use each other as sources it's that's crazy. right well- you guys have you guys know that you could read any article that's about Howard Stern and you'll go, okay, that's wrong, that's inaccurate, that's wrong. Right. Now, just imagine what's being done in every other story. This is just the oh, stuff that I, you happen to know a lot about. Right. And we're not even ta- you're not even talking about the things that we've been covering in the last little while, like the fluff pieces that Buckwald has paid for, the things.com, the blast.com. We're talking actual newspapers well when they still actually covered him um and so the hollywood reporter the cover yeah says yeah howard stern evolved right i know i mean every anyone who who listens to him for a second goes you mean calling a retarded person a slow adult is evolving you're Mm -hmm. still exploiting them aren't you calling them a conquerer is evolving (laughs) you're not paying that how much are you men is is evolving Sam, they're I meant to ask you. They're shitting in a diaper, and how much are you paying them? Zero? Oh, yeah. evolved. Right. Sam, who was it that gave you the the periodicals? Was it Peg Chandler or was it Molly Miscali? Um, Peg Chandler, who's amazing. She sent me all these great... She was going to throw them out, and I messaged her, and I said, mm-hmm. do not throw any of this out. Send them all to me, and mm-hmm. she sent me all these magazines, which are incredible. God, so God bless I'm her. just, it, it was, was any of them, the, uh, any, were there any copies of, um, entertainment weekly part of that collection? Um, no entertainment weekly, a lot of New York magazine, Rolling Stone. Okay. People, uh, no entertainment okay. weekly. Okay. Just because I was thinking even of those because TV guide, we- and well, that's a that's a good one. Entertainment Weekly, at least, was the one was one of those that tried to straddle the line between people and, you know, Rolling Stone and semi decent journalism. But even they would get it wrong half of the time. So you're right, Ben. It wasn't. It was mainstream media and also these websites that don't exist in, in print and never did. Um, right. You know, before print died completely. So let's continue. Even at an early age, I remember wanting to be on radio, wanting to do a show as opposed to sitting there and playing records, he recalled in an interview with Playboy. 
My father brought me a tape recorder and I would sit in my room and do radio shows, but not like what I heard on the radio. I would do hours of sketches and voices and all kinds of shit. I wanted to have fun and entertain people. He also hoped that radio would make him so famous one day that everyone in New York knew his name. <laughs> okay, so the fame trumps actual talent and that the desire to be known is clearly, like, that's just pure narcissism anyway. Um, ben? Yeah, I was going to say, if you listen to the history of Howard Stern, they play, you know, that he gave them all of his audio tapes. They play his so-called radio shows that he recorded mm-hmm. when he was a kid. That's right. It's, it's anybody, anybody's kid with a camera or a, a microphone to record themselves, a tape player. You know, it's inconsistent. Sometimes he's singing along to the radio. Sometimes mm-hmm. he's doing like a, the Batman sketch that we know about, Music Man and stuff. Yeah. Um, but it's not like it's got um, a beginning, middle, and end. That it's just he's just recording and doing a stream of consciousness, as he would say. It's not. It's no different from any other kid playing around. Yes, and in fact, uh, the King Schmaltz Bagel Hour, which was modeled after, was it King Biscuit Flower yep. Hour Hour Hour? Yes, something like something like that. And uh, he'll admit it; he was the he thought he was the weakest link. We'll play that clip also later on, guys. It's it's worth hearing. And there's mm-hmm. snippets of the actual show, which is interesting because he is a clapper. He is the guy going woo woo or whatever, making he whistles or noise. He's the group's Robin, as I've said. I yeah. mean, I don't know which clip you pulled, but if yeah. it's if it's the burping clip, it might be. Um, yeah. Is that the, is that what you pulled? I'm not sure. We, we I don't think oh. we'll get to it because he doesn't go okay. into that into later. So yeah. Okay. What? Well, anyway, there's a burping clip where he he, he he's uh, explaining to uh, I guess Jackie and Fred and Robin how he what he really did was pioneer this current radio show back in the 70s, and he goes, you know, and we were getting fired for this. Uh, you know, we're I, I I was doing crazy radio, and they played <laughs> it's the other guys burping and Howard telling them to stop and to be serious. He was the <laughs> he, he was pig vomit. He wasn't he wasn't wild man. Yeah. The other guys were. In fact, the thing that you've all heard of, Godzilla goes to Harlem, Howard isn't even in that sketch. So the one notorious thing that they've done, he had nothing to do with. Uh, yeah, for, that that to... go that goes in line with um when uh, Gilbert and Artie would always go on a thread of just absolute hysteria and hilaria. They would hilarious just they would just keep going and Howard would be the first person to want to cut that train off he'd be like stop no mm-hmm. more no more funny we're done with this mm-hmm. um, Sam just I'm going to edit this out after remind me later on to play the Meg Griffin video that we that I cut up specifically for I don't remember which episode we, we did but the one the more recent one where she's told she explains you know he became corporate he was corporate Howie at that time when he starts yeah. at the station because it's 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 a it's great except for the fact that she doesn't mention he's responsible for her losing the job uh, because or at least he he he, he was I, not I, a team not player. Known it. No, I hate that people don't shit talk him enough. The end of the sixth grade, Howard faced a bleak situation at Roosevelt Junior Senior High School because of the dramatic influx of disadvantaged blacks into the community. The school's enrollment had come to exceed capacity by more than 1,000 students. So much time and energy was being expended in remedial instruction that the more advanced youngsters, such as Howard, lacked a challenge. Now, the next page on page 10, guys, is almost completely excised from the audio. And I'm going to read some of it 
uh, because just to get it, I mean, to be for the sake of completion. Uh, I'll read the first part of uh, page 10. By the end of the 1968-69 academic year, when Howard was completing the ninth grade, more than three quarters of the 4,000 students in Roosevelt schools were black, and one-third were families receiving um, welfare assistance. In order to address the needs of the much, uh, the, much of the student body, the Roosevelt School District called on the state to offer even greater financial aid to pay for the costly remedial programs. It goes on to say, um, uh, the uh, superintendent, uh, his name was Spillane, he refused to cut a school lunch program because he feared the youngsters just wouldn't eat. So it says, when voters twice rejected the proposed school budget, the Board of Education instituted austerity measures, which included the suspension of both uh, interscholastic sports and the purchase of new library books. So they had to make do with um, lesser services as a result of this influx. And you discussed this in the first part of this mm. earlier. So um, mm. it was... It was a no-win situation in a lot of ways. Yeah, by the way, that superintendent went on to a career worthy of a New York Times obituary. He Really? He was a, a pretty big deal, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think he went on to Washington, D.C. and other – and was recognized as being – so he was no joke. Um, mm-hmm. So when he was saying, uh, we can't handle this, they should have listened to him. <laughs> oh, well, shocking. <laughs> they don't? Yeah, sounds Sam. like a – did you want to read the it's, next part, the next paragraph, the by this time? Sure. By this time, most of Howard's pals had left Roosevelt. Friendships waned because the boys were not old enough to drive to visits with one another. In addition to the discouraging school situation, longtime residents were unsettled by local crime. A spring night in 1969 turned particularly ugly. Violence at the Roosevelt Youth Center was followed by a rampage along the main commercial thoroughfare, Nassau Road. An estimated 200 black youngsters attacked whites and damaged property. One person was shot, two others were stabbed, and three businesses were destroyed. <laughs> it's 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 obviously extreme guys and, and and I'm sure it happened so um that alone would have been enough for a lot of families to say fuck it let's let's as Howard would say head for Z Hills Ben Yeah he has the year wrong it was actually 1968 in reaction to Martin Luther King's assassination that's what i thought so, initially um, Yeah so the Stearns stayed there for another year and a half they they did move in 1969 but not immediately following because i i was like you i thought well that's a good reason to move if this is going on but they stayed for another year and a half i noticed a lot of the government causing a problem and then trying to solve a problem like maybe you should have just left well (laughs) enough alone you did the right thing by passing all that stuff but then you put your thumb on the scale for other things that completely reshape these neighborhoods and now what's the domino effect this like, yeah like like why not well enough alone right you don't have to create a project but you don't have you don't have to create a project period you create housing and then you add social assistance to make sure that that doesn't remain a project you make sure that education is um compensated for you make sure that you know there's ways to not have that happen uh there are successful projects in the world guys believe it or not and i don't believe that there are actual projects here um, you know, Howard would talk. It would be literally just, you know, the house. I, I assume it went 
the house was purchased by the government, yes. and then it's and you know and even if you have a neighborhood that becomes all renters, that becomes mm-hmm. a less desirable neighborhood. Even if they're not welfare, if it's just all renters, because there's less value in taking care. I mean, there's there's less pride in taking care of the neighborhood and taking care of your place and, and yeah. so on. Um, so, but I always want to point out too that I'm sure that there are black families who didn't like the way that neighborhood was going. And left also, but they don't get counted. They only count the white families who left. Yeah, uh, like anybody and, who was anybody who was able to leave probably might have left. Absolutely. I would think so. Yeah, yeah. There was near total transformation during Howard's last few years in the neighborhood, as the broadcaster told Newsday in 1983. Almost every white person, every beautiful liberal white person, moved out. My parents felt that they didn't want to run. They talked it over with me. I said, yeah, I definitely would like to remain in the community. We did that whole trip. Okay, so when does he ever say that? It, it went, the, when more recently when he talks about it and even on the Channel 9 show and then um, with uh, the Letterman show, the, the Letterman Net- Netflix interview, my parents wanted to stay, but they weren't going through what I went through. Here he's completely flip-flopped and said, no, I wanted to stay. I was willing to give it a go. Yeah. And he's much closer in 1983 to the time that this would have happened. I mean, we're talking about 14 years earlier mm-hmm. versus now when he's, you know, when he's 50 years past it and he has these memories that are completely tarnished by psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, jokes that he turned into real life. Oh, that That's really correct. happened to me. Yeah. And you know that Ben and Ray had conversations like this with him just from how you see them interact with him mm-hmm. and they talked about everyday things and goings ons so i could see them having this conversation what would you like to do and i could see them including him in on this conversation i mm-hmm. can yeah. i don't well, think they're terrible parents i think they were open-minded people who actually respected the thought of their children yeah. Not only that, but they were very inclusive of the kids in the neighborhood as it will you know, and we can't play all of the history of Howard Stern, but most of the kids you'll hear if you ever listen to that whole saga, they'll tell you they wanted to go hang out with the Stearns. They thought it was fun. They thought Ben yeah. was funny. He was witty. He was a conversationalist. He was a charmer. Um, and they always did stuff like barbecues or whatever, and everybody was invited. So it was a very communal type of situation now it says it says following that paragraph but not in the audio go figure his tone was conciliatory it was a very tough time blacks were really finding their own identity their own music i was into the beatles i had fights but it wasn't so much with black kids as with lower class white kids that changes from depending what recording you hear depending on the interview to black and now originally i was like oh the black kids that beat me up it wasn't because i was you know white it was because i was jewish or you know like (laughs) all of a sudden yeah, <laughs> you know? he always knows their motives. Right, everything's like a. It's like a. What's it, choose your own adventure. The story changes depending where right. you go. And so, if you truly were getting beaten daily and having your pants stolen and whipped with chains daily, why would you tell your parents, "I'd like to stay here"? Right. Why would you follow up that with? He added, "Yet it was definitely a good experience." Right. And I think I think that's part of. Uh, I'm going to see if that's part of the audio. Let's check this out. It was a very tough time. Blacks were really finding their own identity, their own music. I was into the Beatles. I had fights, but it wasn't so much with the black kids, but with lower class white kids. He added, and yet, it was definitely a good experience. 
Oh, it wasn't prison? Embellished his <laughs> it wasn't, description yeah. of Roosevelt, no doubt for theatrical effect, so that his nastier recollections were studded with details of black-on-white menace and a weakling's tears. At times, he claimed to have been the only white kid in a black neighborhood, an exaggeration that his own mother scoffed at. And he belabored memories of his early teen years, declaring that he was repeatedly intimidated and assaulted in junior high school by tough black students who forced him to hand over his lunch money. These far more dramatic tales replaced his 1983 claim that most of his fights had been with lower class white kids. So already you can see within a chapter why he wanted nothing to do with this particular book. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. what does Colford, Colford make of this, do you think? He's, here he's discovered you're a pathological liar. Well, I like that he doesn't really add his own spin because it kind of gives more credence to him as a writer. He's mm-hmm. just true. spitting it out as That's true. He he's just spitting it out as he's informed of it. And that honestly I appreciate. But I did write when I was reading this, I wrote the racist propaganda that spawned his truth. So Howard took something that he felt was truthful that it was um, a good thing that helped liberate him, and now he's using it as racist propaganda. And mm-hmm. I could see the lower class white kids coming from a high school. If I had ever like tiffs with people, or it was always no offense, it was lower class white people. It was black based on economics more than. people never gave me. Yeah, it was based on economic. Social status as opposed to, wow, this guy's Chinese. Wow, this guy's, you know, uh, he's Latino. Uh, yeah, it, was, it wasn't really based on, I'm white. Uh, the other thing is, I've got to say, he, uh, I agree, uh, I, that leaving the information out there flat out gives it a more stark kind of contrast with uh, as opposed to uh, Col- Colford taking a side and maybe obviously offering biased journalism more or less but you could write it in such a way where it doesn't I, I think he took the right tact here but as a result some people might say well this is dry reading because it's just flat out you know uh, documentation I, I will say though you could argue he actually takes Howard's side because mm-hmm. he says no doubt for theatrical effect not, yeah. no doubt, because he's a pathological liar who sees himself <laughs> as a victim. Yeah, if if he well, if he really wanted to fuck him, absolutely. I mean, and as as it was, I'm sure Stern was not happy when this book came out one bit, uh, especially having released his own quote unquote autobiography uh, a few years. Even though it's not called that, but Private Parts. Let's face it, that's exactly what it's supposed to be. Right. But it's you know, uh, it's but, as you'll know in the yeah in the book. And as well in the movie, he doesn't get harassed by black people. He doesn't claim to have been beaten daily by blacks. And in, even as he's ogling them nude as they walk past him, no one beats him up in the, in the, in the book. I mean, in the movie. So many, so many people should have punched him in the face. But I, I don't even think to fuck with him. So, like, you're saying, oh, just to even fuck with him. I, I'm glad he didn't even do anything to fuck with him. Like, I'm glad it's a, you know... A yeah. real reading of the information, but I just, mm-hmm. yeah, that little. I agree because I then you can dismiss him and his motives, right? Can you imagine falsely accusing someone of a, of a crime of of beating you up, and then you go, "Well, I said it for theatrical effect. I'm not a liar. That's yeah. not okay. You're not allowed right. to go and cast a race well, of people 
as violent uh, uh, thieves and say right. it was for theatrical effect. Right. And he's you're right. Like, where's Sonny Hostin going to take him to task for this shit? Like, let's let's forget the just the use of the N word. But how about castigating an entire race as being such and such? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the next paragraph here, not the whole rest of the page is completely omitted. Uh, I'll read this first part. Then, Ben, maybe you can read uh, the, the next sure. paragraph. Nevertheless, Howard held with a martyr's fervor to the belief that he had been enlightened by how others reacted to fear. <laughs> the king of all fears talking about this is funny. Recalling the changes in his neighborhood, he decried the, quote, phony white liberals who fled Roosevelt without trying to live in integrated surroundings. He claimed that they had imparted a lesson in hypocrisy. Um, yeah, do you want to take over the next part? Yeah, sure. He used to really go hard against phony white liberals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um you know, now all of his best friends, uh, if you can call them friends, at least the people he spends his t- he's willing to spend his time with, would fall under that label. And since since he's all about projection, isn't he really saying I'm a phony white liberal as well? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's um, I don't know if he if if what he's saying is that liberals are phony, right? Or uh, exactly what he means by that. Or right. you know that these are just these are people pretending to be liberal and they're not. I'm not sure what he what exactly I, he means by that. I yeah. I wrote um, in my notes when I was reading this. I wrote pot meat kettle. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. if you take the um, who there goes the neighborhood episode that we released last year, where he talks about look, he spent an hour and a half on the show repeating the trope of what blacks move in, whites will move out. That's just the way it is. <laughs> like was this, this experience was this that. He had, yeah, this is the experience he had, you know, in Roosevelt, applying that to all like decades of, you know, inter interracial, like in like intercultural, whatever relations. It's funny. Uh, But the phony white liberal. So his parents were actual classical liberals, I guess, in a sense, you know. Yeah. And so he's become that. I think what he means is the phony white liberal, which I would kind of equate to, like, look at, I don't know, Meghan Markle and Harry, who are claiming all these crazy whatever, whatever they're claiming. But they live in the most non-diverse neighborhood in the entire universe. Last last summer, um, the New York Times did a podcast called Nice White Parents. I never listened to it, but it's about these um, liberal white parents who advocate for diversity and equity and so on, and then will quietly vote or, or take uh, measures to make sure that those things are not <laughs> realized in their neighborhoods. Yeah. yeah. Um, now I didn't actually listen to it, but um, I got the strangest call out of the blue in November. It's actually the day after the election here. It's Gavin McInnes, who, if you remember, years ago, I tried to get him on the podcast for um, mm-hmm. at the old podcast because he was because vehe- uh, he was vehemently anti-Stern, and he was well, he was a, going. He, I could, he's a he's a Stern listener who is also a hate listener. Yeah. And so I hadn't had any contact with him for years, and I get a call on my phone out of the blue, in reaction to this podcast, and he says, "I just had an epiphany. I think that." You know how Howard Stern is low IQ? This is his theory. You know how Howard Stern is low IQ? And I go, yeah. And he says, I think his parents are also low IQ. And they didn't realize when they heard their liberal friends saying, we need to live among our brothers, 
that they weren't being serious. He said that the Stearns weren't smart enough to realize that's just something you say for the record, but not something you actually do. And they actually did it. And then they ended up, um, you know, having their son beaten up. I, I told them there all the reasons why that was not accurate, including yeah. the fact that they moved to an integrated neighborhood. It became yeah. integrated over time. But right. anyway. Well, it's it, it, you have to be like as as much of a if you're there are different degrees I've found over the years. There's different degrees of stern fandom, and it it doesn't necessarily have to dovetail into when you got into them. It's how much were you willing to go back into the archives to listen to to read about, check out the articles, check out the newspaper abstracts, um, you know scans, whatever, to do the homework and find out uh, the real truths of it. And you do have to do a lot of that work. It is like doing a master's thesis when you get through with all of it. And oh, prepare it, for a podcast, Fillmore? What? Exactly. I know. It's a, it's a novel, novel idea, isn't it? Um, and so with Ben and Ray... Um, again, it, it, a lot. So much of it has to do with gut. When you listen to Ben on on the air over years and years of appearances in person and on the radio, you don't get the sense that he's a dumb person at any stretch, not you know, at all, by any stretch of the imagination. So um, he's uh, and and Ray, God only knows what her. But I, she's even her taking him to task. Whatever education she has, what she, what was it you called her at one time, Ben? She's the Dread Pirate the Dread Roberts, Scott Pirate, <laughs> Dread. Dread. <laughs> Whatever the the um, Princess Bride, Dread Pirate Roberts, whatever it is, um, but yeah, she's that she single handedly, yeah, yeah, it it Fighting is off. the Dread Pirate <laughs> Roberts. Yeah. Um, and it was, the it, entire it, staff it, it, when they're her defending him. In, yeah, the, specifically that was her calling in to say that Howard's claims of having his underwear washed in left out in the sink never happened, and she, um, you know. Robin, everybody joined in to to defend their Howard, and she just <laughs> swatted them away effortlessly. In fact, a caller was even saying, you know, my father also doesn't have memories. And she goes, you know, I don't know who you are. I couldn't care less what your father is. <laughs> I mean, it's really masterful. To to. Um, Loved it. But, but when, you know, Ben and Ray never waver. You, they never flip-flop, and sometimes they say, Howard is the one who wavers constantly. He's mm-hmm. the one whose stories are always changing. Yep. Um, so I, you, so I I always believe you know I started off like everybody else believing Howard, and then over time you have to go my gosh I was wrong about everything. When you brought up the George Takei thing, I happened to just like try my best to find Ben Stern as a guard at any California um, camp. Yeah, For, I couldn't yeah. I couldn't find any record of him, but. You know, Manaz- Manazar, I believe it's called, was the main camp that they had there for the Japanese. And okay. it's no wonder, no fucking wonder that Howard gets so uncomfortable about this. And I just always wondered why he always skated over this. And that blew my mind, Ben. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, co- the concept that Ben might have been a guard at one of these camps. Or yes, not even, it, at least at least worked there and worked right. or had something at, to at, do with it. The last bit of the chapter is called "More Bullshit Narratives Unravel." Plus, hello there. Although the immediate neighborhood's racial makeup changed dramatically, it remained a well-maintained and relatively tranquil enclave amid deterioration. Now, before we go into that, I realized I forgot that Ben was supposed to read the last paragraph on that. So, uh, what, uh, can you do page eleven there? The, uh, the yeah, which group? starting which. Um, 
Which paragraph? Last par- last par- uh, second yeah. last paragraph. The no group. Second to last. <clears throat> yeah. No group observed the turnover in the neighborhood with greater puzzlement than the black newcomers. Many of them were from New York City. They had chosen to purchase on Collin Road and surrounding streets in order to have their own single-family home and leafy piece of the suburban and the American dream. More than a few of those new black home buyers of the 1960s still live in those same houses in the Stern's old neighborhood in 1995. The way people took flight was amazing, remembered Christina Evans, a black nurse who moved from Queens, just like the Stearns did, to Roosevelt's mm-hmm. Hausch Boulevard with her husband and children in 1968. You'd be talking with them one evening, and they'd be gone without a word the next day. It was like we were the plague or something. Yeah. Many people moved away because their friends had moved, but many of these same people clearly couldn't afford another mortgage because there were homes that, that they sold for nothing. Uh, Yeah, and it goes into the next page again, not covered in the audio. These sellers who had bought their homes new in the 1950s for around $16,000 typically had asked $28,000 to $30,000 a decade later, but settled for $20,000 to $23,000. Black families who moved into the Conlon Road area were further confused because they themselves, an accountant, a policeman, a doctor, a teacher, were as middle class or perhaps even more prosperous than the whites who were selling and fleeing. And uh, so that was where the audio continues. Sam? This this economic issue is another thing of the government putting their thumb on the scale and then you're changing the makeup of a neighborhood and you're also changing the favorability of a neighborhood and then you're changing how houses are sold and the prices they are sold and you're changing people's lives and how much they can make from their asset. Like most people, middle-class people don't have anything else, but their checking account, their savings account, if they have that, and then their asset, which is their home or their car. So you're devaluing it by doing this. And it's just, it's insane to me that. Well, imagine you're, you're asking $30,000 and the agent tells uh, prospective buyers, uh, the house next door to you is government owned and is uh, a welfare right. family living there and across the street as well. You're going to go, I'm not paying that kind of money for that house then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you've you've crippled that person. But I would also argue that Collin Road wasn't the problem area. I mean, no. nobody has the problems with the, the nurse moving in and the, with her family and stuff. That's not that wouldn't be the issue. No, it wouldn't. And the other thing is, uh, but the thing is, this is the, what seems to get lost. A lot of commenters on YouTube, especially because we've ta- we've mentioned the whole move from Roosevelt to um, sorry um, from um, uh, the the move from Roosevelt to uh, Rockville Center, Rockville Center, and people saying, you know, I've I've been to you know I've been to Roosevelt. It's a slum. And like, dude, he moved fifty five years ago. Like yeah. this, there, it didn't happen overnight. It happened over time, and I'm sure it got you know over time. It's like water hitting a rock. Eventually, you know what was is no longer, and it changes for the worse. But it, it's not always overnight. Like when they say it's overnight, I know it's months, years, years, speech. decades. Yeah, exactly. So some people are taking it a little too literally. Or you could just the you could just adjust and instead of having public housing move in there how about you adjust the economy or the way the mortgage system works and help black people get mortgages or loans to move in there 
the correct way if there's such a liberal community and then mm-hmm. like do it that way well, like why wouldn't you this, or why wouldn't you the, give people people of color opportunities to have the same jobs that white people have so they can afford the same houses and move into that community if they're so liberal instead of versus making it public housing and making it terrible and having a government making you have to rely on the government like i i just don't understand this well, it continues. Ben Stern acknowledged in his words that it really wasn't that bad. For example, his house was never robbed. His friendly wife went out of her way to compliment new neighbors such as the nurse Christina Evans for taking better care of their greenery and property than the previous homeowners. What's more, Ben and Ray were upset when some of their white neighbors became panicky. The Stearns voiced a moral obligation to avoid the herd mentality exhibited by the people fleeing Roosevelt. They attended meetings at which blacks and whites encouraged one another to stick together and not give in to hysteria. And yeah, Ben, I, I totally agree. It, it could easily be like a homeowner's like a thing where they get together and they say, look, let's not fuck up the neighborhood we have here with hysteria right. and, and ruin the property value as a result of right. it. So it right. says, you know, the, I, I also want to point out, sorry to cut you off, yeah, but sure. um, the homeowners who are s- you know, thinking I'm going to sell it for 30 and they sell it for 20, mm-hmm. they might not have their own record company or recording studio in Manhattan like Ben Stern has acquired. Yeah. Ben Stern was not moving down when he left because he took a loss. He's moving to a very wealthy neighborhood. So, mm-hmm. you know, he can tell everybody to calm down, but they're going, like Sam said, this is their, this is, this might be their entire fortune tied up in this house and they're just watching the value go down. Um, yeah. You know, thinking that it's worth this and it's only going to be worth this. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, if you are in Ben Stern's financial financial position, it might be easier to be calm. So they but they were saying that the you know, they were maintaining the properties and let's you know, what's more, Ben and Ray were upset. You know, the white neighbors became panicky, but let's keep things nice. So I'm like, so the demographics changed, but. They were trying to maintain the houses. So well, yeah, that's right. again, but then the, like as I said, though the 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 neighbors aren't panicking over the responsible black homeowner who's taking care of the house they purchased. Yeah, they're panicking over the person who's receiving welfare, living next door, renting, um, who's not taking better care of the house, mm-hmm. and who has Does, you know, yeah, doesn't have yeah, a vested interest no in to it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and Ben, like you said, you he had a business that was located in the city, which is far from where he lived. And yeah. so he could maintain that asset so it wasn't a big deal for him. It continues, uh, yet for all the nodding agreements expressed at these sessions, some owners sold their homes as swiftly as they could. Some of Howard's friends who moved did not come by later because of parental fears, he told Rolling Stone. Uh, I had one or two black friends, and that was it, he said. My parents could pick and choose. They would go and meet some of the more middle-class, upscale black people. They'd get in their car and drive to go see their white friends. They had a nice life. I, on the other hand, was in a prison every day. When recalled sentiments uh, such as these prompted a woman to call Howard's radio show and accuse him of promoting racism, fired back i'm promoting racism hey i live this <laughs> just because so i was in prison every day but when my parents asked me would you like to be released from prison i said no i'd like to stay <laughs> yeah and i said why fuel lies to spread racism that was my thing why yeah. fuel lies to spread racism no worries. I mean, if it's getting ratings for your fucking show like I, it's all all's fair in in you know in radio and war and social yeah. inequality 
in the same way of that he has Robin, who just you know to piggyback on what you said earlier about Ben Stern being the one to um, you know direct him and guide him in a lot of ways. I don't mm-hmm. think Howard realized Robin's value um, when she left. He was he said I don't care basically in Washington. I think yep. it was Ben Stern who pointed out to him you had a good foil there. You don't have that anymore. And mm-hmm. I really do believe that because Ben Stern pushed him towards Buckwald, pushed him towards asking for more money when he went to D.C., pushed him towards a number of things. When Private Parts, the movie comes out and it, it indicates that, OK, like artistically, we're floundering without Robin. That right. really right. It, like it's, it's really playing it down. The fact that he was lost without the laugh track. He was right. he he definitely didn't appreciate at the time the uh, the bulletproof racism vest that she provided. Get out of racism uh, at the accusations by having not only a woman but a black woman in the studio, and which was yeah. foisted upon them. Which we'll read into later. It was someone else that decided that, not how it wasn't organic. Sam, right? If I say, if, sorry, if I could just finish what I was going to say, Sam. Uh, what I meant to say was that. In the same way that Robin gives him the get-out-of-jail-free card that you were talking mm-hmm. about just now, mm-hmm. so too does saying, I was victimized daily among by black people. I'm allowed right. to say these things uh, as a right. survivor. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> he's such a victim. I would look at the people who are in charge of this capital, of this power, that are making this happen, that are making these situations, yeah. that are making my home lose value that but are the making thing is, this neighborhood lose what it was. But at the I same would be time, pissed at the government. Yeah, of course, but you're not a one-dimensional thinker like he is. He has no <laughs> sense of politics. This guy would be confused looking at a game of fucking pong because uh, he just he doesn't have the mental skills, the alacrity to, to say, look, this isn't about such and such. Let's go deeper to the root of why this is happening. He can't look that far down. I mean, this is we were just talking earlier before we started recording. How could he be a mad fan, a diehard mad fan, and have no... No wit magazine. and have yeah mad yeah. magazine sorry and have no wit and no comic timing and no sense of if you read mad like the classic mad that i read in the 70s anyway like a 70s and then even some certain amount of the 80s they were brilliant in terms of their satire in terms of their their mockery even their like their song parodies uh they were fantastic they were really really good and subtle and they had to be because it was only six panels you know they had to hit hit you right away otherwise it was lost it was almost like a vaudevillian you know one one liner comics and that kind of thing so anyway it doesn't make it it doesn't it doesn't surprise me that he's dumb at politics as dumb at politics as he is at comedy and he loves the government. He's the first to say how much he lo- – I mean he hates social programs. Yeah. He loves the government. He loves it. Yeah. But I would say too, he doesn't need to go looking for other reasons, others to blame. He's, he's happy to blame black people. Uh, yes. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He, <laughs> yeah. If you were to point it out to him that it was uh, – you know, you could blame your local government for that, he would still – I prefer to blame black people instead. <laughs> anyway, let's continue. It did not become a slum as the sellers of the 1960s feared. Ben and Ray Stern have suggested that they remained in Roosevelt as long as they could. They were swayed to leave by Howard's reports of being beaten up at school. According to Howard, he had cracked under the stress and begged his parents to move. And in the book, it says, it got to a point where you couldn't fight anymore, Jerry Dickowitz, Howard's buddy recalled. People were so determined. We have to stay. We have to stay. But as parents, we saw it to it. We saw it that it had become too dangerous. In June 1969, at the end of Howard's first year at Roosevelt Junior Senior High School, 
the Stearns bought a house in nearby Rockville Center. In practical terms, the social laboratory that Roosevelt had become during Howard's formative years paid off handsomely. It enriched his comedy. And it, it, in between there, it says there's a quote from Howard, um, uh, she, like Ray's like talking it up. We loved living there. We, we wouldn't trade it for anything for the world. It was sad. We had to leave. And then Howard disagreed with his mother's assessment. When my father pulled away the car away from Roosevelt that day, I never looked back. He told his listeners. <laughs> Which doesn't really <laughs> fall in line with the end of the chapter, but thank you, Paul Colford, for pointing that out. Uh, let's continue. The experience emboldened him to press the envelope of racial humor much further than most white performers had dared, and to get away with it. I love it when I get called a racist for doing black dialect, said <laughs> to an interviewer. The fact is that some people do talk like that. I talked like that. Howard came to use his harsher negative view of growing up in Roosevelt as a springboard for attacks on phony white people who preached racial tolerance but resisted any contact with blacks. His upfront exposure to black sensibilities gave him the confidence to engage in outrageous antics with and about African Americans. I said in my comments when I was reading this, I said, step and fetch it stern, mocking blacks and being a poser. Yeah. Like, well... Yeah. In, in, at the time of, he had a lot of, I mean, in New York City, at least, he had a lot of black listeners, I think, uh, that didn't see him as being racist. Like, they thought it was shtick. They believed, you know, as many did, that, oh, you know, it's just him playing up, you know, shock jock, that kind of shit. And at least it's, you know, it's it's if nothing, it's not boring. But there were probably an equal number that said, no, flat out, I'm not listening to this guy. <laughs> He's a fucking racist. Mm-hmm. And certain ones of those bits, especially further down the line with the, when they got the TV show stuff, you couldn't really write that off as, as so much a satire. So much of it was just an excuse to use the N-word as often as possible, where possible, and crowbarring it in where it really, it, it wasn't comedy. It was, as you said, Ben, before, imitation comedy. Yeah. Well, what I would say about Howard is he had the will to trash black people. Jackie had the wits to make it funny. But Howard wanted to do it regardless. He just wasn't funny. Jackie made it funny. As O.J. Simpson awaited trial in 1994 for the slaying of his former wife and one of her friends, Howard did street corner radio interviews with blacks to see if they shared his conviction that the former football star was guilty. To one man, an emigre of Ghana... He asked, what's the main export of Ghana, gonorrhea? As seen on the night's televised playback on cable television's E! Channel, the man laughed at the question. He laughed even harder when Howard asked him if he had ever been snagged in Africa by a kind of trap that hooks a foot and yanks a person upside down. To the next man, who identified himself as an immigrant from Jamaica, Howard inquired if he had any rolling papers. Yes, indeed, the man admitted with a sly smile. Oh, I mean, listen, and this is we're taking in this of the context of now. Yeah, I will say back then people were more liberal with just being you could get funny, you could do politically incorrect racial, comedy. Yeah. Political yeah. politically incorrect comedy was way more prevalent. I mean, even from black comedians, white comedians, I mean it just existed. But yeah. Howard used it in such an 
on the nose way where you couldn't take it as anything else but being completely racist. Right. No, unless you, I, I disagree. Unless, I mean, unless, I'll tell you. I think I, I think I think if you if you now knowing what we know, yeah, it was him being him happily being exposing his racist thoughts. But I think at the time, certainly with the as you said in the uh, in the era of which with which the con- context has to be placed, you could write it off as okay, he's got a black woman in studio, he can't be racist. It's got to be a bit. Why would she sit and be subject to that and listen to it if he really meant it, if he really felt like it? So that was you know that was considered i wouldn't say acceptable but it was certainly not something you would get lose a career over but uh further back yeah you're right the borscht belt comics it was always like don rickles always had every bit you know there's a black guy in the front row he's you know he just finished robbing my hotel room there's a chinese guy he just did my laundry you know everything was fair everything game. was that but people, yeah. I think people had thicker skin way back when. I think, I think without without question, um, we grew up differently, and now it's it's completely changed. So we're not trying to becry, decry Howard I, then. I, I just don't think he was. I just don't think it was funny. Oh God, no! I disagree. I I, I want to say that. Um, so I was seventeen in the summer of nineteen ninety four. Okay. And that is the summer I started listening to Howard. It was the summer that I moved from Illinois to Las Vegas. And I remember right. driving from uh, Illinois to, to Las Vegas. We stayed in some hotel. My brother and I went in our room together. We had the E! Channel, which we didn't have in Illinois. Okay. And you know, you know Howard's history with Chicago. He barely could stay on the radio there. So That's I never right. had heard him. I never actually heard his show. I'd heard him call in and I'd seen him on television, uh, like the Tonight Show type of thing. But I hadn't, see, hadn't seen the E! Show. Mm-hmm. And – I immediately fell in love because I had never seen – I mean my jaw dropped watching the E! Show in 1994 when it showed Ralph and it said Ralph the Fag was how they – was what the screen said, what it said on the title. Yeah. And as you talked a little bit later, it's, it, it you know, switches to another one. It says Barry Face Queer. Barry Face Queer. <laughs> and I – my brother and I found this so shocking and funny um, and so I was – glued that entire summer we, when we lived when we landed in vegas i listened every morning to, to, and would watch the e-show twice yeah because they would air it at eight o'clock and then again at 11 mm-hmm. o'clock every night and then i think they would show like a rerun i mm-hmm. mean i became a hardcore fan and you know i was tricked i didn't know that the reason jackie was laughing so hard was because he was selling his own joke i thought yeah. that howard had come up with Ghana, gonorrhea, that kind of thing. So yeah. I really didn't understand Jackie's role as a seventeen-year-old going. Well, Howard's the brain. Howard's the brains. This guy's what a laugh track. Um, but yeah. I, I can, I can. I'm sure I've watched this and I can picture it. And I'm sure if I watched it again, I would probably laugh at it because um, the delivery. I've said before. I always thought Howard had strange comic timing because he would tell jokes. Late, like he'd been thinking about them for a while, but I didn't. I didn't realize later that was a communication delay of yes. it going from Jackie to Howard and Howard processing and reading it back. Yeah. But um, I definitely didn't take him as racist when I watched this stuff. I saw it as daring, as the way that Colford's kind of Colford's kind of saying it. I mean, you know, Howard was obsessed with OJ that summer. Oh, I mean, yeah. there was yeah. not a day that didn't have OJ content. Yep. And Um, I will say this is keep in mind, guys, the context of 1994, as Ben says, which is started like 93 is when I got private by bought private parts of the book and and started 
realize because like, I'd seen him on late night shows early on, but mm-hmm. did, didn't pay him any any mind because who gives a fuck? I I couldn't get the radio station, so I had no skin in the game. But mm-hmm. um, in by ninety two ninety one, Dice Clay is getting uh, hassled by the gay community for being called a homophobe. Sam Kinison mm-hmm. certainly was getting backlash. Loads of people, comedians are getting backlash. Him not so much. Why? Because. Their comics, that must be them, but he's doing a radio show. It's shtick. So he's still getting that cover of, oh, I'm not really homophobic and I'm not really racist. So it was easier the same way I thought he's playing dumb. He's not really dumb. So he's not really (laughs) racist. He's, you know, really just not, he's a little tone deaf with his racial humor. That's all. Sam. So I... I was a kid during the OJ time. I was in fourth grade, but my we only had one TV, so every day was OJ. I mean, mm-hmm. my parents were not the type of people like, what would you guys like to watch? It was every day off the bus, the OJ yeah. trial. This is just what mm-hmm. it was. And so this was just like a huge part of my life and so, so integral. And then the, even the bus driver had the radio on and was listening to whatever the hell was going on. I mean, it was just mm-hmm. constant OJ and Howard too, because my dad listened to Howard and I had family in California. So I remember them talking about him, his inflammatory, the way he was talking about it. This was going to bring up, they were worried about this is going to start another riot like Mm. people were worried about what if this because california went up in flames like i don't know how many months before that for the rodney king thing yep yep so people were like legitimately afraid and howard just unabashedly was speaking how he was speaking and i remember my parents having conversations with my uncle and aunt like uh yeah, this isn't good. Like we were, we don't want this to happen again. <laughs> yeah. Let's calm this you know, down. Yeah. Uh, getting back to the, um, the, the, the night of the, uh, the, the Bronco chase, yes. um, you know, that was covered live on television and I was still living in Illinois. We hadn't yet hit the road for Vegas at that point. So I was watching it live at my friend's house we were just shocked because this was Nordberg to us from the naked gun. I mean, we were, so it was just, yeah. it was unthinkable. And then when they get to the, I see OJ and he'd be looking scared guy. Yeah. It was <laughs> surreal. I had yeah. no idea what Baba Booey was. It no. was, I was listening to a voice. I knew it wasn't real. It was really surreal to listen to live. I mean, it's hard to, you know, we listen to it now and we hear it played back and the Baba Booey to you all and all that kind of stuff. It's when it happened live, it was, especially if you didn't know Howard Stern and you didn't know the reference at the end. Yeah. It was very surreal. Yeah. It's so funny. Like my parents and my uncles and aunts, they would all say, and Baba Booey to y'all. They would do like, they would do that back to each other. We had pogs and slammers and we had like an OJ guilty, not guilty in his face on it. Like the sides of the pog and the slammer, right. like different ones. Like, remember those were popular. Yeah. I don't <laughs> uh, it, it, well, uh, let's let's play the last bit of it, and there's a little last section of the chapter one, then we'll go right into chapter two. Although his use and abuse of black stereotypes often stirred immediate protests from his sidekick, a black woman, Robin Quivers, he would have his listeners believe that he knew all too keenly that most blacks took no offense. 
He said that he experienced none of the fears that other white people had when discussing black people because he once lived among them. I happen to know that black people are not as uptight as the average white man thinks they are. Uh, and the last bit of the chapter deals with <laughs> with something I don't believe I've ever seen, but um, he there's you can see footage on the uh, 60 Minutes piece. Tribe repeatedly, as he did, to distance himself from Roosevelt, saying on a broadcast that a return visit to the community would make him nauseous and give him the shakes. He let it slip that deep down the old neighborhood exerted an unbroken attachment. He asked the camera crew from his show on E! to get footage of the house on Conlon Road, quote, so I could see what it looks like. And it was still there, he told his audience. It painted a strange shade of yellow, too. He could go home again, if only through videotape. And I was thinking to myself, I thought on 60 Minutes you couldn't find it. (laughs) Yeah, I said the same thing in my book, that he couldn't find it. And I also thought to myself, so he said, the quote, I happen to know that black people are not as uptight as the average white man thinks they are. Okay, then what would you make of the Robin Sally show (laughs) because apparently they don't like it they don't Mm -hmm. like what you're saying because that's what about the fact that robin called you a racist yeah robin Robin went to the to the um was it washingtonian magazine and called him a racist when they split Uh, up i believe so uh yeah so um and you know she later says in her book that it was just because she was upset that she said that but you know she was stomping on his face and you know a lot of other stuff but um you know that is a lot of ways uh, feel more like the Rickles at the end doing the I'm a nice guy act, you know, right. uh, you know, I'm, I'm a nice guy at the heart. So he can go and claim, you know what? I he's buttering up black people by saying he's the no other average white man thinks you guys are uptight. I don't think that. But he wants his cake and eat it, too. That's what's going yeah. on here. Yeah. OK, guys, now we're going into chapter two. And if you're following along, that's on page 15 in the hardcover. And we'll start to play a little of this. The Stern's home in Rockville Center was barely two miles west of his Roosevelt address, but the new environment felt foreign to young Howard. Rockville Center was whiter, more sedate, and noticeably richer than Roosevelt. Okay, so there's a whole massive chunk of the book removed from uh, poor Elliot Gould's reading, and I'll just read a little part of it. There is another important difference between the communities. Even though Rockville Center had a large number of Catholic residents and was the seat of Long Island's Roman Catholic Archdiocese centered at St. Agnes Cathedral, nearly all of Stern's new neighbors in and around Rose Lane were Jewish. Nevertheless, in a snub outrageously close to home, Jews were not welcome to play golf at the country club around the corner. That is, even among neighbors with whom Howard might feel comfortable, he remained an outsider. (laughs) Yeah, I need to correct Colford there because he is a woke journalist. No one can just walk in and play at a country club. You have to be a member. And no country club has ever had a no Jews allowed policy. Um, And I know this because we uh, the magazine I work for did a thing on country clubs years ago. And uh, I had got an interest in that. Um, And I just just before this podcast, I went and researched um, no Jews allowed at country clubs. So there's never been a rule like that. The the best that they could find is um, that the way a country club works is only members can nominate other members. Yes. And if you're if you're not in good, you know, with um, a Jewish family who's well off to to afford a, a country club, you're not going to invite them. So um, it's not. It wasn't by discrimination by 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 saying uh, I only want to be allowed because even in this 1950s article I read said that. 
they did find some country clubs that had blacks and Jews as members, but not many. No. And so it wasn't as though it wasn't like there was a policy. It just ended up that 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 was the case. They weren't, you know, the people who were recommending other people were recommending people who they went to church with and worked with and so on. Right. Uh, In the same way that I just want to point out, Colford has no problem with Howard going to an all Jewish camp that no one else is allowed to go to but Jews. But he but he does want to point out that Jews couldn't walk in off the street and go to this country club. Anyway, I just thought that that was a little bit of a bias and, and, and misinformation that he's putting out there. Um, you know, in spite of doing yeah, in spite of doing a decent job on most of the rest of the book. Yeah, he well, does do a decent job. But as I said, he is a journalist and they are um, not always to be trusted. <laughs> Sam? Um, but to be trusted in the Washington Post recently, as of June 22nd, 2021, black leaders in Rhode Island divided over Senator Whitehouse's family ties to an exclusive club that black people aren't allowed in. It's an all white club. Yeah, so, I, I would bet you uh, that there is no black rule leaders there in Rhode that. Island were divided Tuesday on Senator Sheldon Whitehouse's defense on his family ties to an exclusive beach club. And then questions about whether. Uh, club's membership is all white and he uh, I mean there's no black people there and he said uh, is there uh, why are you still a member there and he was really defensive about it so you know well couldn't he explain the way Benjamin did and, and say yeah, I, look you, you need to know it, it's like a mafia you need to have you, you, uh, if I say you're a friend of ours <laughs> he's, you, yeah, say, then, yeah then maybe then maybe people just don't want to belong there you're right yeah I mean I remember reading about um, the editor of Esquire who who was a member of this country club and if I remember it right it cost $200,000 a year to be a member oh I believe so that, that. All, I mean, they're called exclusive for a reason. Financially, yes, it's it financially, is very yeah. exclusive. Oh, so, always. you know, yes. So, you first of all, you how many people? Do, I don't know anybody who could afford two hundred thousand dollars a year to go to yeah. be a country club member of so, any color. <laughs> of any color, and it's, you know, it is so crazy. Got to look at it that way first. You have to be yeah. a, a top, top, top one percent. Yeah. It's, it's and it, I mean, sh- golf has always been a she she sport, and and let's be honest, golf and then tennis right afterwards, really, um, especially if you want to be a spectator. Um, well, and, there are public and, courses you can go play on on public courses. Yeah, uh, that definitely are not restricted and right. um, exclusive. Yeah. Um, so let's continue with the audio there. Happy as Howard was to be out of Roosevelt, the transition proved difficult. After Roosevelt, Howard told an interviewer, I went to a school with all the blonde hair and blue eyes and I was very freaked out. Although anti-Semitism among teenagers did not arise in the form of ugly displays, except during name-calling incursions made by tough Italian kids from adjoining South Hempstead, everybody knew who was Jewish and who was not. Okay. okay. Um, hey, hey. <laughs> It's funny. I've uh, I had uh, only a couple friends back in the day, and I'm talking God, um, thirty more than that, thirty years ago now. If I'm thinking back to elementary school, and they had anglicized their name, like your Greek kids that mm. decided their name, like you know, uh, uh, Giannopoulos became Johnson, and I'm like, with that olive skin, I'm sure people are going to really buy that one, um, <laughs> you know. So the guy <laughs> John Johnson, and uh, and you know. 
Papadopoulos became Pappas, that kind of thing. Very few of my Jewish friends had their names anglicized, their surnames anyway. Their first names, obviously, they decided they were, some of them were non-traditional, whatever. So unless you were pretty learned about the etymology of names, you couldn't really tell. Um, you could yeah. and you couldn't. It depended in on the situation. In Italian culture, if you name, like we have fam- family members like Santino Tino or... Yeah. Diminutives. Fortunato or Giovanni, Johnny. Like, there's stuff like that in my family where people um, Anglo your first name more so. Right. Yeah. Like, and Ari- I, I would say Ari- that Aristotelli became Telly, Telly Savalas, right? Um, but uh, anyway, go ahead. Sorry. I then. would say that, Stern, that Howard Stern could <clears throat> slip between worlds more easily than, say, Jerry Dickowitz or Dr. Lee Weinstein because <laughs> right. Stern doesn't Stern. have that sound to it, you know? And, it sounds and, German, and this which is, I believe. It's further proven, by the way, yeah. from um, the broadcast that they do uh, f- when they explain the name of the um, the, the Bagel Hour. The, 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 what is it King called? Schmaltz the, yeah, King Schmaltz. Uh, one of the guys speaking says, um, well, I can explain since I, I'm the only Jewish person here. Howard remains stone silent. He doesn't correct wow. and say, no, I'm Jewish. So, um, yeah, I mean, he, he was a chameleon, I would say. Even yeah. my grandfather, my, my, my dad's father, his name was Pasquale, and he angloed his name to Patrick to work and to mm. live Look as an Pat immigrant. Cooper. <laughs> Look at Pat but, you know, I, I, I would say, like, even I, this is what I've been told anyway, that, um, uh, a relative of mine, his name was Wilhelm, and he changed it to William because of WW2. You don't want to yeah. sound German. So, right. um, wow. I feel bad. My, uh, I, I had to hide pictures of my, um, patern- my maternal grandfather because he sported a Hitler mustache until the day he died. And, oh, yeah. um, you, you could not, and he unfortunately, as he got older, really unfortunately looked like Hitler. And, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, not jo- I'm not joking. He, he uh, got a tracheotomy. I didn't mean to laugh. I just <laughs> no, but there's. I got pictures. I got. A, I bought a scanner not too long ago, like a slide scanner, and <laughs> had a bunch of slides I converted. And I'm looking at pictures of him, my uncle, and my dad outside the like next to the Jimmy. Uh, it's a motel in near Niagara Falls, and my grandfather in full sunlight, sporting a Hitler mustache in like I don't know '77 in Canada. Not really kosher. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I asked, I asked my mother because she's a hairdresser. Go, what? Didn't you? Didn't you suggest to him maybe to drop it or, or grow it out or something? And she's like, eh, you couldn't tell him what to do. Uh, <laughs> so, so what are you gonna do? Um, at any rate, the uh, he he and he. I mean, let's let's face it. He spent how many years, decades, saying I'm half Italian. I'm half yes. Italian, or you know, my, oh. you know, whatever. And the only reason to do that, and he'll say. And he'll admit, I think at times he'll admit it. The only reason to say that is to get away with making Italian humor, Jewish humor. It makes sense. But mostly because he hated being Jewish and he admitted yeah. to it. And yeah, I, think I would more argue. The latter. Yeah. yeah I, think I would so. argue that, that his contempt for Catholics um, is he vocalizes even more than he does his contempt for blacks. And it's, it's, permitted more socially too you can go on letterman and say how much you hated living among whiteies with blo- with blonde hair and blue eyes and mm-hmm. um even though he married a blonde haired blue-eyed catholic 
Right. Um, uh, it's, uh, I don't think she's – no, she's Polish, right? Um, but I would say that in this period of his life, he seems to have far more resentment towards – uh, Catholics than he does towards blacks, which is just—it's just funny. I mean, it's like there, there's really the only time he's not resentful is when he's around Jewish people. Yeah, I mean, he will—he's—he'll uh, say Wilmet was the Wilmet was the greatest time of his life, and mm-hmm. he, he has told Robbins because I got to be among my own kind. That was his his uh, an actual quote from him, <laughs> which is but really it, inclusive. <laughs> yeah, but it is very strange that. Then he goes on to hating his Jewish school that he went to, his Hebrew school, and he hates on that. And he hates on all of that sort of culture surrounding it. And he also says, like Fillmore said, I'm 50% Italian. Why Why would you say that if you're not, you know not proud of your heritage. Of course, there must be something wrong. You must feel some sort of shame towards this. So, yeah. well, to me, part, it's maybe, like, maybe it's because... And then, so, when he does this stuff, it just, to me, screams that he... He, he desperately also, wanted the, to be with somebody the, else. With the, with the Catholicism, though, he, he doesn't like the fact that the Hebrew school and all this other stuff, but then he knocks on the Catholic stuff because he didn't like the Hebrew stuff, and he's putting it one and the same, but it's not. Well, he doesn't even know. One of the one of the most common, like, well-trod tropes um, of the comedian is if you're well, especially since so many of them were Jewish. What's that red buttons line? <laughs> it's you know in this business, there's a you know, one hundred percent of the uh, the comics are Jewish, a hundred percent of the singers are Italians, and that's ridiculous. So there's no difference between the Jews and the Italian. One year of high school, and um, <laughs> so he goes, and so the the Jewish comics would always bust on themselves. They would be self-deprecating humor, and nobody did it better and more often than Woody Allen. He made a career out of self-deprecation, mm-hmm. and he Howard, who claims to be a like claims to be funny has even tried to do stand up at least and we have a you know evidence of that doesn't go that route not because he thinks it's unimaginative or you know unoriginal but because he's too stupid to realize that's an angle you can take get people like you humility will add you can be blustery but if you have that self deprecation in that sense you it's fine it's acceptable in all forms though like catholicism jewish whatever it's if you can be self-deprecating, fine. He can't. It just—it's bizarre. He can't be self-deprecating in a real way, in a way yeah. that—that's honest about it. Right. Like right. So, for example, when um, okay, so he has no—he has no love of his Jewish heritage. Okay, but then El McPherson can come on and say, uh, "You're being Jewish," which he—I mean, she was being like. She was being stereotypical, but she's saying you're being a worry wart, basically. But then yeah. Jamie Presley comes on and says, you were slapped the yarmulke. And he, for weeks, he had that in his ass. because Or, or Andy Dick says, yes, uh, oh, you recently. Jew, and then you're canceled. Your show's canceled. You're no longer allowed to come back. But he can go and say, oh, you know uh, – put down Christianity and Catholicism and their belief yep. in the man in the sky and how they're yep. all hypocrites and all this and mm-hmm. that. And, um, but you can't, you can't, you can't even say the word cheap about him without oh, him yes. canceling you. Big time. Um, it's very, um, 
revealing. But you know, convenient. He, he likes be, he likes being Jewish for the victim status. So when yes, he can claim that, you know, he can claim the reason why I had to masquerade and act as though I was not Jewish fully is because there are people out there who would want to kill me because I'm Jewish. He would tell mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know he would claim you know, it was it was basically to to just to just to even have a career. Now that's ridiculous. He yeah. thrived in um, a, a, a among um, professionals who were Jewish. And you know I know we're going to get to this chapter at some point, but I I want to lay out just how important Jewish people were in his success. Not just Ben right. Stern, not not just Ben Stern and using his connections and saying my connections here, my connections there, but the owners of the station that he worked at in Westchester who made him uh, uh, the program manager with very like he was fr- six months out of college with very little experience and they make him the program manager the, mm-hmm. the Israeli sales guy who you know they, they choose Howard not the Catholic uh, Joe from Chicago what, what is Karmazin? Karmazin is Jewish he's Jewish he, in yeah. fact you know Howard said at his press conference when he left WNBC Flanked by Buckwald and Carmazin to announce that he was moving there, is how happy he was to be leaving. I don't remember how he put it. Gentiles, maybe, Gentiles. I mean, and going with um, Jewish Mel Carmazin. Um, mm. He's he's thrived because of um, you know Judaism. Jewish guys who are who are uh, you know believers of his and supporters of his and so on. Yeah. Um, but so so anyway, this whole thing that he'll tell you that I had to masquerade while while by the way outing other Jews who might you know um, yeah anglicize their the names Jew. or whatever with <laughs> guess who's the and Jew and mocking them yeah mocking um yeah like and uh, yeah exactly and and ridiculing it as if you know being Jewish was a you know it was something negative and fostering that kind of uh, you know self self loathing and, and not like every religion has had persecution. You right. fucking idiot! Exactly. Right. I mean, I remember with the summer I was listening. First, started listening to Howard, and I would, you know, I would hear how in, um, you know, in the middle of the country, how they all think Jews are. They talk, you know, they're they're that they're evil, they're whatever. And I just right. thought, I never had a conversation that was spent just trashing <laughs> Jewish never. people. I mean, it's it, <laughs> the the level of narcissism that you yeah. think that. People who aren't Jewish are just sitting around talking about Jewish. You've watched too many movies. Yeah, isn't totally. it the worst? Like, don't you? I grew up feeling. I grew up reading Anne Frank and learning about the Holocaust and feeling nothing but oh my god. Yeah, this sympathy. Is, I have empathy. so much empathy for this. Like, yeah. that's the complete opposite of what he's saying. Right, yeah. and he he be the one making jokes like, "Oh, look, Anne Frank. She, you know, she's uh, fuck Anne Frank. She she knows her way around an oven, shit like that." Right, um, th- right. This exactly. is this is the yeah, yeah. this is this is the this is the thing, I don't quite get. Um, you're right. It's it's a New York thing, but it's also yeah, it's narcissism, but it's also a New York thing. And so, like when I think about our podcast, we have fans from Slo- Slovenia, we have fans from believe it or not, all over the world now listening, mostly American, but within America, like from the Midwest, all the, over. The, the so-called flyover states, predominantly United States, obviously, but you know that's where Howard was biggest anyway, so it makes perfect sense. But they they span if we got them on. Uh, we did the Jump the Shark episode, and I recorded a bunch of people, and they all sounded like they all came from different parts of, you know, North America. That's mm-hmm. like why, I, if he wonders why he never was a big hit in, I don't know, Arkansas. Maybe think about these things you're saying. 
<laughs> Maybe be a little more. Well, I mean, I would inclusive. also say don't don't paint anyone who doesn't live anyone who lives uh, south of of um, Manhattan is yeah. a, re- a, a a redneck. redneck. Yeah, incest. <laughs> you know, like yeah, exactly. So let's keep going. Like a misfit, both in Rockville Center and among many of his teenage peers. He also considered many of the other students and teachers disconnected from real life as he had experienced it in Hostel Roosevelt. To me, it was the same kind of crap all over again. All the teachers were like, let's talk about the black experience, what it's like to be black in America. It was so hypocritical. I was so angry with the whole phony liberalism. What's hypocritical about wanting to engage your students in dialogue? I've never understood that. (laughs) I would say that what he's saying is... Um, you don't actually live um, with, uh, you know, surrounded by black people like I did. So you, for, so you telling us to uh, to embrace our brothers, you're a hypocrite because you wouldn't do that. That's what he's saying. He has no idea where his teachers live. He has no idea where they live or where they right. grew up. I said in my book, in my notes, I said, you're still using this to make sense of George Floyd. So he's still using this trope to make sense of something that he has no idea. He does not live among the working class people. No, he does not live. He never has. I mean, even even at their at their lowest, they were okay. They might have they were Ben Stern was working class before they had kids. But then became firmly middle class once they moved, and and you think Howard suffered a day while he was and born? It, no, and it's no. not even about blacks and whites. It's about socioeconomic status. And you, correct, you've never even lived amongst poor people, or no. middle class people, or people working two jobs that barely earn three figures. Stop it. Stop I'm, it. It's I'm going to read ridiculous. <laughs> I'm going to read this one segment that's cut out. Uh, 15 was an awkward age at which to trans- be transplanted into an unfamiliar setting. Harder still was Howard's experience at Southside Senior High School. The student body of more than 1,000 students had divided itself into cliques into Rockville Center's junior high and local elementary schools before Howard had arrived. Now, and yes, by the way, guys, we all know the different the difficulties of changing schools in the middle mm-hmm. of you know mm-hmm. elementary school, junior high, high school. I mean, that's that that's all walks of life that's an issue um i quote um i met howard because i was also a new kid in town classmate marty getrayer recalled i found him sitting alone in the cafeteria which you know later on we'd find out that that's a theme that follows howard for many many decades no one wants to sit with him (laughs) there's and i don't know if this is in that um in the audio but it would have followed a sentence in there um it follows the sentence, everybody knew who was Jewish and he was not. Howard and his friends recognized that Jewish girls would date non-Jewish boys, but Jewish boys did not draw much attention from non-Jewish girls. Hmm. So, in a way, you – I mean, if you want to play Psychology 101, this hmm. is Howard's ultimate revenge. I got the non-Jewish girl to marry the Jewish guy, the most popular girl in school, and I, Howard Stern, did it. Um, You know, the Catholic. So, um, I don't know that that ever, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if (laughs) if him and his boyhood, if if him and those, you know, that that weird photo you've seen of him with his classmates, where they all look appropriately aged. Age appropriate, yeah. looks like a 
yeah, he's coming to warn them about Christmas future. Yeah, he looks um, like Coco they, the Clown without makeup. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I wouldn't be surprised if that is in the back of their minds. Like, wow, he did it. He got the most popular <laughs> blonde-haired, blue-eyed Catholic girl. Well, that's well, I, that's one of the things, Sam. You're gonna. I know you're gonna mention it. If you don't, I'll be surprised. But the the his his he always had that thing of. Wouldn't it be great to walk into some room with this girl on my arm as opposed to, wow, she's so hot. I'm so happy. I'm with her. Like, uh, you know, she's she's amazing in bed and this and all that, all this crap. It's always. Yeah. What do I appear? Do I appear like a raging heterosexual if yes. this person's on my arm? That's good. Sam? That's a good point. That's the appearance. He always just gives the appearance in the 1992 article in New York magazine. Listen to how he talks. He says, well, it's true. They stuck me in a black neighborhood. You'd be crazed, too. It was a traumatic upbringing, to say the least. There was a time I even hit on a black woman. (laughs) He also told a nebulous story years later. Like it got that bad. He told us it got so bad. I even hit on a black woman. Yeah, I was that desperate. I guess that's what he's yeah, trying exactly. to put it. Um, yep. there, he told this nebulous story years, years later about a friend of his with an afro that was Jewish but darker skins. That a, a girl that would only date black guys dated, thinking he was black, but he was white. Which I don't know. This, this is one more of those. I know a guy who, and yeah. it was a, during a racial discussion. I don't know how much I buy it, but um, it, it, it's it's silly. <laughs> it's silly the way. I don't, he, I, it's very strange. I mean, was he, unless he was wearing blackface to pull off the because there's you're missing part of the look. Well, <laughs> I mean, still if have... he was if the guy was like a quarter black, let's say, but you know, okay. but still wouldn't, wouldn't you have certain features that indicated, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't want to get into the discussion, but I yeah. thought it was kind of weird the way he explained it. Um, yeah, the next she must not here, have had very much experience, but uh, you know, just speaking of that quarter black thing yeah. for a second, isn't yeah. it interesting that in private parts, yeah. they chose to slip in Howard's riding to school with a, a car full of racist little boys who use the N-word. Ray slams on the brakes and says, Howard and I are half black. Don't use that. Now, why would they want to confuse people? Because the viewers might be going, is he, half, is he part black? Uh, I don't get why that was supposed to be a joke. Right. Um, I don't get why that was included in there other than – Let's confuse people and give Howard a pass for all of his black humor that he's done. Well, yeah, like if you have to have the joke explained to you, it's it's probably not that funny to begin with. But in this case, it was either left in by accident or there was a judicious edit made incorrectly following that scene or preceding it or a narration that was dropped because, you know, like this is where he could have gone. They were the Woody Allen route and said, no, my mother, this is how my mother diffused racism. And that would have saved it. Right. That would have been fine. Right. But you got, right. you know, Betty Thomas as a director and not Ivan Reitman. Yeah. Go ahead, Sam. Or like with the Jewish thing and the dating thing and you're dating somebody that you watched other people achieve like the homecoming queen that mm-hmm. which beth was and yeah you you got that you got that trophy what does that mean what does that mean for you like yeah you you hated that you literally hated that you rallied against it you despised it you talked about it you hated that stereotype of person and mm-hmm. now that's all you wanted and brag about it like look at me this is what i got you you got a stereotype 
Yeah, well, it's painfully obvious, and to everybody but him. And as we've talked about it with Bob, the Chicago Bob, and our and narcissistic personality disorder episodes, it's all about appearance. So Beth is really just, you know, uh, she's the lamp in his and in, in the foyer, or she's, you know, the rug. It's just an it's just some trapping. So she's just another yeah. possession. And what kind of possession do you need? Well, the car that looks great, the the beard that looks great, or wife. You know, some people would <laughs> still choose to believe they're in love, and right. uh, the hair that looks a certain way. Everything's got to be paid for. So but I would also. Yeah. yeah. Also, just want to point out, Jewish girls didn't date them either. So why are you getting hung up on non-Jewish <laughs> girls not dating you? <laughs> nobody yeah, dated nobody them. dated you. So, nobody which, dated you. Which brings me to the next clip. Dr. Lou drops some science. Dr. Lou. You know, I don't remember when we spoke about it, but um, it was tough for him. The neighborhood changed dramatically. Basically, he was the extreme minority in, in a community. I mean, he wasn't joking around. It, um, it was a black neighborhood. The other kids in the neighborhood, maybe there were some other white kids, but they weren't Jewish. You know, if, if there wasn't one group picking on him or shaking him down for money, there was another group that would shake him down for money. And he had a rough time. He had a rough time. He wasn't the type of kid who could defend himself. So. Okay, so again, it's about... He, they stole his money, but you don't hear about people telling about his beatings. Like, no. again, that we're going back again. Like, his, <laughs> if he's calling all these people in the witness stand, he's losing the case. Right. And 40% white does not mean extreme minority, unless no. Dr. Luke kind of let it slip. There were other white kids, but they weren't Jewish. So, yes. what, you only will hang around Jewish people? <laughs> I guess so. Sam? Shake you down for money. So, clearly, you were not defending yourself and obviously a target because you're such a fucking pussy. I mean, <laughs> what else is there to say? You yeah. have to you have to have some sort of no offense, but you, it doesn't matter what race, religion, whatever you are. If you come to the table and you walk into any situation and you act like you're ready to get ripped off, you're going to be ripped off. Well, Sorry. Exactly yeah. Well, I don't believe that he was getting ripped off anyway. No. I mean, Ray would not have oh, permitted well. that. No. Uh, oh, do, by the way, I oh. I agree with Benjamin because do you think a marble would have been stolen out of his pocket without him freaking the fuck out? I don't. Yeah. yeah that, well, that's a good point I, I, too. Well, I believe, well, sure, he would have told Ray, they stole my money. And he would have been 16 doing this crying, you know, <laughs> uh, because, and he would have handed, hand, handed it over gladly to uh, prevent a beating, you know. So, so when Dr. Liu did this uh, history of Howard Stern, interestingly enough, he mentioned Dr. Liu during the Artie saga when we did yeah, the bro fight. And bro he fight. said he emailed me. And uh, uh, I got back to him. I couldn't do him a favor, but I haven't talked to him in <laughs> 20 years, <laughs> 20 years. Wow. So I was like, so how good of a friend is this person? Is this a reliable narrator here right now? Because, yeah, is he just saying what Howard wants him to say? Uh, well, yes, I would say with, so. You know, I've speculated that Dr. Lou is one of the guys Howard beat off whenever he was younger. <laughs> he admits you know, he admits how attractive Dr. Lou was. I mean, he did. He rearranged yeah. his life to follow Dr. Lou to Boston College to, to yeah, be to you, college to, yeah. to then be in his room. You know, he switched his dorm room so he could be in Dr. Lou's dorm room. And he right. talks about, you know, lying in, in the bed while Dr. Lou would have sex with some girl uh, in the in the bed next to them in the dark. But he and, and, and at WellMet, the girls all thought that Howard and 
Dr. Liu were gay together. That's um, right. That's uh, one of the one of the girls from Camp Wellmet admits that because, uh, you know, Howard ends up saying that uh, he he and Dr. Liu had to bang a whole bunch of ugly girls just to prove they weren't gay. <laughs> but yeah, um, you know, I I suspect Howard's attraction to Dr. Liu. He probably is one of the guys who Howard um, beat off, jerked off. Yeah. This makes sense because in 1991 he said in. New York Magazine article, I'm not kidding. One time I was laying in bed, right? You understand that I go to bed early. In order to get to bed early, I have to have some kind of sex. And uh, my wife is not always available because she's putting the kids to bed. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, What the fuck (laughs) does that sound like? What does that sound like, everyone? Does he does he reference masturbation before that? I guess he's being too coy about saying masturbation. Yeah, some kind of sex. Okay, uh, I guess anal sex. But let's continue because Doctor Lou's almost done for him, and I don't think his parents really could see it. I don't know why they decided to hold out. I think the neighborhood changed, and a lot of people left because it was tough for their kids. But his parents held on for you know quite a few years. And I don't know how far. Like, does Doctor Lou go back to? Like elementary school days with him, or yeah, is, they, it just, they were is it just together well met? School, yeah, he. I think they met at a very young age. I mean, they're just okay. weeks apart in uh, age. I mean, days apart in age. Um, okay. And there's a picture of I, b- I believe there's a picture of the two of them as young boys, um, you know, ten years old or something like that in Miss America. Okay. Next clip is called um, "King of All Losers." Just one sec, guys. In response to the hypocrisy that Howard said he saw all around him, he decided to be silent in class. He built a protective shell around himself. He's always mythologizing himself. I love that. I'm sure that's exactly why. He became so introverted, so inconspicuous, despite his long hair and height of more than six feet, that between his arrival in 1969 and his graduation in 1972, he left only the dimmest impression among most of his classmates (laughs) and teachers. I think dimmest was the perfect word. (laughs) Yeah, and you know what? I would say the exact same thing was true at Roosevelt. They didn't. They weren't obsessed with you. They weren't beating you up. They didn't even notice you. You know, you weren't worthy of being noticed. You were background. And uh, the next, we're like I said, guys, we're going to go back and forth here. He was a dud. (laughs) Yeah. So this is this ties into it. This is uh, part of the chapter. Part of the chapter discusses it here. Um, uh, It's because it's not written. Lawrence Waxman, who in 1969 joined the Southside faculty to teach drama and public speaking, had an incredible ice-breaking exercise that required each student to face the class and do something silly, such as humming the national anthem while standing on one foot. According to Howard, his assignment was to stand and sing, row, row, row your boat. But he proceeded in such a low, mortified tone that Waxman urged him to project more, compounding the misery. Howard wanted to repay this anguish years later by nominating Waxman be the first civilian shot into space. I thought that was funny so, too. Yeah, in, in was it Miss America where he talks about doing a speech for Allison? Their yeah, yeah, wedding, yeah, their he, whatever her fortieth birthday. Allison, yeah, Allison's having her fortieth birthday. Her yeah. husband's a public speaker. All she wants is for her him to show up at her little party and say a few words, give a little speech about him, her. Yeah, which means don't spend any money on me. Just get up there and say something nice. He absolutely rails against this. She, she leaves the room screaming. I mean, she leaves the room crying. He's screaming. Uh, his mother calls him and forces him to do this. He shows up having prepared no speech and 
in for this room of Allison's friends, he makes them all get up and sing "Row, Row, Row Your Boat." Mm-hmm. So I just I, basically yeah. like I'm going to humiliate you all. Like I was humiliated. My wife doesn't even deserve this from me. That's right. Um, oh, one sec. There's, they're still on page. Going back to page 17, guys, I skipped a little. As late as 1995, uh, many still had no idea that the infamous radio personality had been a member of their high school graduating class until they were contacted during the research for this book. Only the few close friends that he made during his three years at Southside seemed to remember him at all. Um, so the, the reference about the carpool and stuff like that, and which featured in the movie, as Benjamin talked about. Um, but later on, it says here... Um, Waxman, the teacher in question, says he does not recall the Row Row incident. Uh, Howard had slipped so completely from Waxman's mind that he, like Peter Brawlower, uh, drew no personal connection to the Howard Stern who he occasionally listened to on New York's WNBC AM a decade later. Um, the photograph that he dusted off later uh, wax, dusted off Waxman's memory of a kid who was, in the teacher's words, a personality less. Uh, this is I'm paraphrasing. I'm, not, I'm, I'm quoting, guys. Uh, a personalityless character who sort of looked like a goofy-looking drug freak. Nothing else. There were many far more outrageous kids who were memorable for their blatant drug abuse, or for being more talented or funnier than Howard. Oh, mm-hmm. and, and that's, so that's it. Yeah, he was completely unremarkable in every sense of the word. So the next clip is called <laughs> Sports Tutor. Imagine, <laughs> but can you imagine? Like we we've all been to high school with people. Can you yeah. imagine somebody like this coming onto the scene in such a prolific way and just pretending that we didn't know that he was such a dud? I mean, like just to denounce all of the things that we knew about him going to, to say that he was funny. He was a wallflower. He was wallpaper. He didn't exist. Yeah. yeah. The only other time you hear this kind of thing is when it's a mass shooter or yeah. a serial killer. And they'll go, <laughs> he was the quietest person. He's the last person you would expect. And it's not as though Howard was harboring comedy this whole time and (laughs) choosing not to share it with his friends he the point is he isn't funny he i mean and that should be very clear to everybody nowadays especially when he will point out that he will not even reply to text messages in group text messages because they're all being funny and he won't do that no he wouldn't excuse being i do it for the radio only and that's it right like when Don Rickles passed away and he said, I wouldn't tweet about it because, you know, I'm going to save it for the radio show. Or, But he, he explained much later that he didn't want to be judged on the meager amount of tweets, replies that he got from hits as compared to uh, Kimmel, as compared to Stamos, um, who, you know, I don't know how many people they have interacting with them on Twitter, but his, his diminishing returns on Twitter was always a big mm, stick up his ass. Important. Yeah, big time. Uh, so this clip is called uh, Sports Tutor Needed. Howard was a terrible athlete. Howard was not the guy you wanted on the dodgeball team. He was not the guy that we wanted when we were playing softball or anything. He couldn't run. Is that Milton? (laughs) I think it might be, yeah. So are we going to, we have to take his word for this because we've seen Howard play basketball against uh, Nils Lofgren really shitty and play tennis horribly against Bowie, who's no uh, John McEnroe himself. I've seen him 
walk off a stage. That's all I need to know. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And so, when you were picking up socks, Howard was that guy who was supposed to be the last guy bat. He was supposed to be the last guy picked. He was always going to be last. So those are the things I remember most because I started to get into sports and stuff and Howard just was not somebody who was going to be on my team. And the next clip is called The Story of Screwy Louie. Go ahead, It Sam. was not somebody that was going to be on my team. You know, there's this cartoon, uh, Recess, that was popular when I was growing up and Howard is just the quintessential dork. Like, yes. there is no one that's going to pick you on your team because you just fell at yeah athleticism which is okay fine but it seems like he failed at every turn he failed at um (laughs) intellect everything he failed at being in any sort of leadership quality or garnering support in any sort of humor drama comedy acting singing anything nothing yeah yeah, well, yeah, and I mean, Christ, the, the larger the school, the more the options, certainly, unless you're in, a, like, you know, as they explained, you know, due to, t- like, um, money being an issue, not having extracurricular programs, but back then, come on. And the other thing is, it's funny, him and Robin both were painfully, painfully below average people who managed to get this kind of, you know, notoriety. Now, it's funny, th- there's a quote I heard ages ago, I think it was something like, um, nerds, the difference between dorks or geeks and nerds, a nerd at, at the very least could still like they have some kind of smarts to back up on. They, uh, they have other nerds they hang around with. They can still have some kind of array of friends that are like-minded and maybe equally nerdy, but a dork or a geek will always be a geek. And they're even more yeah. amongst, so even amongst his peers, if he even had peers, they said he was the, the biggest loser of all of them. Well, so, look yeah, at Doctor Lou. Doctor Lou became a doctor, so he's right, com- yeah. obviously he's smart. He, he, it's like to me, what, where were, where are your friends? Like yeah. you have no friends from childhood, right? And is it because in, uh, you're too shy, or because you were unlo- flatly unlikable? Which we all know now is the latter. It's it's got to be the fact that you were unremarkable, uh, useless at just about everything, and annoying piece of shit. So. Yeah, uh, I was going to say Miss America, which it's a funny line, which means he didn't write it. But it says that um, all he did was – the only people he hung out with were the shitheads, but I wasn't even the king of the shitheads. So that's how much of a loser he was. But So we've got his friends saying you would never want Howard on your team. You've got his <laughs> teacher saying he was goofy looking and totally unremarkable. Uh and you've got Howard saying, well, I guess the reason that the most popular and beautiful girl in school didn't date me is because I'm Jewish. No, it's because you had nothing going for you whatsoever. Yeah. Well, the, the, the page 19 of the book, Robert Roosh, who taught English literature, remembers that Howard basically slept through my class. It's one of the great ironies that you had this very quiet person who went on to become an outrageous star. Um, let's see. Uh, in American history course. Um, the topic was whether the topic was the Vietnam conflict or the struggle for racial equality. Howard participated hardly at all. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, said, I said, I said in my notes in this book, I said proving he never had critical thinking skills. <laughs> this, well, why this didn't book. he jump up and do his um, Vietnam super soldier bit? 
for the class. Because yeah, the, grease, the grease man hadn't invented it yet. Yeah, he hadn't heard it yet, at least, anyway. So here's the last quote of that. This one made me laugh hysterically, for, and I'm sure you guys will figure out the reasons. Something must have been going on behind those eyes. Caproni added. Oh. <laughs> Richard Caproni. Yeah, windshield blades. Exactly. Something he was clearly absorbing things. That's the thing. I don't think he absorbed anything. He gets nothing. He can't remember yeah. names. He can't remember yeah. lyrics, movie those, lines, those, nothing. Those darting eyes are not absorbing. They're swatting snowflakes in a blizzard in Buffalo. <laughs> they are no, what, what not. Was, what's going on behind those eyes? Not is, absorbing going, anything. You're going. <laughs> yeah, he's just going me. Me, me, me. You yeah. know, are they looking at me? Are they thinking about me? Are they talking about me? Are they, th- that's what he's doing at all times. Me, me, right. me. So this next clip is called The Story of Screwy Louie, and I only included it because it's from the history of Howard Stern. I only included it because it kind of dovetails into his fascination with whack packers and his, mm-hmm. his, mess, his need yep. to fucking fuck with people who are yep. med- uh, say, mentally impaired, physically impaired, you name it, or, you know, economically impaired. So let's play it. There wasn't anything that was uh, secret. We talked about anything that we saw, anybody who walked by. Uh, it's unfortunate. We were kids. There was a guy who, uh, I guess he had some kind of physical disability, and it affected how he walked. And I don't remember whether it was Howard or Larry Mallow, but somebody decided they'd call him Screwy Louie. Okay, now hold on. There was this kid in my high school named Dino. He was in an electric wheelchair, and I, I, I just like Eric the Midget. He was the most unlikable piece of shit I ever met in my life, and he had a, and he had a rough go of it. Don't get me wrong, but it did not make him more sympathetic in the slightest. It made people mm. want to push him down an elevator shaft. And mm. Howard, like, you know, this is not the situation when he brings in whack packers. It's funny. People have an affection for Hank, for Beetlejuice, for Jeff the Drunk, for even Cabby, guys like that. But Howard is less likable than any one of those people. Even yeah. High Pitch Eric gets money on Cameo. If you put Howard on Cameo, he'd probably get less than High Pitch Eric at this point. <laughs> true. I even said in my notes, I said, so far, all assessments prove he's a total dud with no ability to have thought or full debates, ideas, or conversations. <laughs> That's what I put in my notes when I was reading this. <laughs> okay, so here's the rest of the clip. <laughs> We would all do the absolutely childish things, just laughing at this poor, unfortunate guy that we called Screwy Louie. Howard was as irreverent then as he uh, he is now, so Screwy Louie caught some pretty tough taunts from Howard. I don't know if it's irreverent or just a real big douchebag. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's bullying, isn't it? Yeah, essentially. Um, yeah. But also, Milton uh, wasn't. Milton was part of, you know, through up to ninth grade. This is yes. now we're now in the um, in the in the senior high school because it was like a junior high school and then senior high school, tenth, eleventh, twelfth grade. So he wasn't part of Howard's life at this point. So and also he does allow. I don't know if it was Howard or some other guy who came up with the name. I'll I'll get, I'll say my money's on it was some other guy came up with the name and Howard ran with it. Okay, before the next clip, Sam, could you please, please, please read uh, the second last paragraph on page 19? It's the belief. It's the belief of some students who went to Southside with Howard that he exaggerated for radio purposes the slights and follies that he claimed to have experienced in high school. 
When I hear some of the things he says, I just think it makes good copy, said Michael Horn, a fellow graduate. It was different for him, obviously being new to Rockville Center and all, but still, those of us who remember Howard, we scratch our heads at some of his stories. Okay, so which brings us into the next clip, which is called APB for Missing Butt. And I said in notes of this, I said, no one cared or saw him enough to even warrant alleged attacks. No, (laughs) that's exactly it. (laughs) In high school, Howard saw himself as a geek. Too tall for the world. A big, ugly, tiny, tin-looking bastard. (laughs) His jeans would slide down his bony hips because he would say, I have no butt. Howard loved rock music, especially Grand Funk Railroad, the popular heavy metal band of the early 1970s. The former member of the Electric Comic Book in Roosevelt also liked to play rock with friends in Rockville Center. He also could sit down at a set of drums and with wide-eyed exuberance punch out the signature riff that opens the Rolling Stones' honky-tonk woman. Okay, now here's one thing on page 20, because it continues over and it talks about, you know, it's all about the physical appearance, right? So um, Scott Possessor, who was famous in that uh, documentary, it was at the A&E one where he says, we called him Gunky. Yep. Yep. Uh, So he said, um, uh, this is his quote, when Howard moved into Rockville Center, he was very quiet and incredibly uncoordinated, recalled Scott Possessor, who had become one of about a half a dozen boys who hung around with him. Even though he was one of the tallest guys in her class, he couldn't dribble, shoot, or jump in basketball. We called him Gunkert or the Big Gunk because he was so big and gunky. He didn't like the name. Um, Being a passenger with Howard was funny because he couldn't drive, Possessor said. He was physically uncoordinated. His depth perception was all off and you'd be terrorized that he would hit another car. <laughs> yeah, I do think that the, that the darting eyes and the depth perception are linked. Yeah, it's, it's most likely. Sam? I, I said, uh, when he said, I have no butt, I said, why show it in my notes? And I said, Howard uh, used his insignificance as an opportunity to create a victim narrative. Mm-hmm. Also, it's, the whole thing so, about his genes. Yeah. Sorry. So, I just think that he used his insignificance in his life as being a wallflower and being so insignificant. He that actually elevated and gave him the opportunity to create this whatever fucking person we have. Well, yeah, he's 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 a hybrid of about every thing he's read, listened, copied off of, you know, it it allowed this because there are so very few people who can comment on this. And so when we do tag him and have people actually nail him down on certain situations, you know, there's very few people who can comment on this because he is so insignificant in multiple people's lives or cross-sections of people's lives. They don't interact with him. He is so insignificant. Yeah. Um, yeah. Was it, uh, I'm going to ask you this one, Ben, and, and so both of you, but say, I think you would remember specifically because uh, it, you're, you've got that elephantine memory. <laughs> um, was it, it was the Howard uh, Fox pilot episode two, I believe, where he brings back either a college classmate or like a well college girl. Fellow- or it was a well-met girl who brought it was her, yeah. her, her, her husband as well. I think Sam knows Lisa this for sure, or something too. like that. I can't I, remember. Yep. 
but it's one of the most it's cringeworthy because he basically berates her for like oh you aren't you pissed off you you know you didn't get with me and the husband they're looking at him and they're not giving him anything because he was so fucking unremarkable then and clearly they're not impressed with his bullshit show the fox show rock and, and roll that to, that to me is the the defining moment of that um that little short lived not even lived aborted um test show fox pilot is that he uses yeah. that time, and it's just filled with pathos. Just yeah. him saying, sitting closer, why didn't you want me? Why did, while his wife sits and watches from you know, a couple <laughs> rows over. And the and husband she, of the and, and they say, look at what she has. My, and she, he combats, what do you yeah. drive? Yeah. And he says, it, well, Ellison drives And he's hoping that the whole this. audience will turn on the husband and say, what, are they, he's just going to walk off with his this girl and leave his wife and say goodbye? Or, this is my my true love. It's a very, I mean, it's a raw kind of thing. I mean, it's real. Yeah. He uh, he genuinely wants to use, he, he genuinely doesn't understand, I'm famous now. How could you not be filled with regret that you aren't with right. me? How right. could you not? Be kicking yourself for turning me down. I would have yep. worshipped you and all the stuff that he says. Yeah. Um, and 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 this is the person going. I had no idea. I mean, she thought she's saving him from the embarrassment of saying, "I thought you were gay." You know, <laughs> uh, we all did. Honestly, Ben, though, this is the entirety of what he does with people to this day though let's fast forward to the comedians and cars getting coffee with seinfeld which is let's say take us into 2015 or 12, 13 perhaps so i can't remember exactly but he's got the new caps in i know that much and yeah. he, every almost every three minutes he's going are we having fun like is this fun not understanding <laughs> and you know his own, yeah because well you it's know, insecurity when I, when I compare that to with uh, like, Sandra Bernhardt in The King of Comedy, where she's yes, got Jerry yes. Lewis tied up. And she goes, is this fun? Are we having fun? Because <laughs> she doesn't – I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know. Is this what human beings would consider fun? It, well, yeah, exactly. So, it, it, again, it's – it's uh, at some point in his life, no one ever sat him down and said, you're – Socially, okay, it's bad enough you have no skills, no no physical skills to offset your intellectual d dullardness, um, your your in ineptitude at you know singing, writing music, playing music, anything musical. You should at least have social skills. You should be able to interact with people. Where it's just why some people believe he's somewhat autistic, or he's got he's on some kind of Asperger's, or he's on the spectrum. Oh, I never Who heard knows? that. Yeah, we'll never know, but he seriously has never learned, even though he's got a mother and father who were beloved. You've got your mm -hmm. main, the main influences in most people's lives. You know, I'm not, I'm trying not to preach to, <laughs> I'm trying not to, you know, denigrate uh, single parents or, you know, what have you. I'm just saying the average person has a mother and father that kind of 50% of their DNA is from one and the other. And then the rest of the nurture comes from their personality. How did they teach you to be funny? How did they teach you how to cook? That's how a person learns growing up to be what they are. And then they kind of fill in the rest themselves. He doesn't seem to have gotten anything from them except certain negative aspects that he believes came from them. But the positives don't, don't like he's not socially, he's, no one loves him. No one likes him. <laughs> right. But then you even take, then Fillmore, you have to take this one step farther. Then sure. having that sort of awful black narcissism that he has, I guess, mm. from that childhood, he then goes 
into Hollywood and goes into that realm where I think most people are pieces of shit and sure. he becomes even worse. Well, it's and I think about it. He's base he's basing his his desire to be in Hollywood on a false premise of Hollywood being some so, kind of fulfilling it. Fulfilling, so fulfilling like uh, achievement when he doesn't quite realize that exactly what you're saying that most people in Hollywood are full of shit and you're full of shit. You should be able to integrate because you're all full of shit. He would never understand that the bit doesn't work because he's always trying to still get friends, even at this level. He is still trying to just get friends or just to get yeah, people he, to like him. He is still surface level petty, insecure, and the same person he has always been. Right. He thinks that, I'm sorry, Ben, just one one last thing. I'll yeah. please, I would, I would like you to, he's that kid who has the basketball, the brand new Spalding basketball, goes down the court thinking, they'll, of course they'll play with me. I have the basketball. And not yes. realizing they don't want to, they hate you, they don't like you. You're, you're not even George from a Mice and Men. You're, you're, you're beyond pariah. And it's you're eventually you be, it, like art imitated life. You became you wanted yourself to be more unlikable. You created this persona to be unlikable to earn the unlikability you already inherently had. Yeah, uh, he's made the claim that when he was a kid, that a neighborhood kid paid him to be his friend, and when his <laughs> mother found out, she made him return the money. Now, how likely is it? That the neighbor, that this boy with money says, the kid I'm going to pay to be with me can't buy me love style, is the kid who can't get noticed by anyone in school. The kid who's right. totally overlooked. So right. obviously Howard was the kid paying. Yes. So you know he's too obviously. embarrassed to say it. I because it continues now. There's no oh, one yeah. in his life who isn't either paid or enjoying the novelty of this is Howard Stern, the the, the guy who would say anything in the 90s, but who's yep. toothless now. So he's safe yep. to be around. Um, we but, we said this we said this during the Chevy Chase speech. Who would have at their wedding people who who gave a toast at his wedding? Oh, your children? No, your parents? No. no. It's it's pay. It's somebody you pay your comic paid underpaid for Artie mm -hmm. and Chevy Chase in an impromptu speech. There's people mm -hmm. you pay, and Pat, your trainer. Who gave a speech at your wedding? <laughs> These are people you pay. Yeah, right. Now we're I mean, hear that, from the that, limo those driver. are the only people. That's you know, like the, that's that's it. I mean, you know, Seinfeld asked him once, "Do you have any friends?" And he goes, "You mean like my therapist?" And I he wasn't kidding. Clip. It wasn't com comedic timing. It right. was well, who else would I talk to? But right. someone who I'm paying to listen to me. That's right. So, um, yeah. So I this this, Ro this is been, Robin. Yeah, you, Robin asked him the so same question. She said, yeah, I think his uh, do you have anybody sorry, you can trust? And he goes, I'm sorry. And he, do you have anybody you can trust? And he goes, my psychiatrist. Yeah. And she goes, what about and Beth? Oh, well, she's not. She's my wife. She can't be my friend. But most people would say my wife or my husband. Yeah. And then their best friend or whatever. So please, Ben. Well, he, he should have said Buckwall, too, because he also trusts Buckwall. Yeah, he did say. Oh, did he? But there, yeah, he, 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 he should have said that. But and he said, she went, my in, therapist she went into and, the argument. She said, these are all people you pay. And he yeah. said, I don't trust anyone I don't pay. <laughs> you got he it. He <laughs> said that. I don't trust anyone I don't pay. What That's about correct. your parents? 
What about your father, who's given you no reason not to trust him? But you're, you know, I think Howard's friendships from from beginning to end go like this: the friendship of convenience, meaning like they're your age and they live next door to you. Yep. The friendships of, you know, they're Jewish also. So like yep. you know the Stern's family, they, you know, they were big into the temple. That was like everything Ben Stern did was at the temple. His yeah. performances as a woman and stuff was always at the temple. Uh, Camp Wellmet, you know, they're they're Jewish and they're your age, and the kids at school at Rockefeller, uh, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, Rockefeller Center, they're they're Jewish. Those are the only people who he would be friends with. So um, the unusual times, you know, you know, that he ends up finding someone who really doesn't have. Uh, those two interests, I mean, those things that they, that they tick, either they're they're right next door, they live right in your neighborhood, um, or they're your age, or they're Jewish. It's on. I mean, it becomes well, they're paid by you, or they're <laughs> uh, admirers of yours because you're a celebrity now. Pasta, 